Hi, everybody. Welcome. This is the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, and I'm delighted to have the opportunity of sharing some time together with you, uh, particularly since the, the papers lately uh, have been absolutely jam-packed with heart-rending photographs of refugees trying to get into Europe. Now, uh, you might wonder what the date of this podcast is. And the truth is that it simply makes no difference because what I'm saying now um, has been true for a long time. Uh, Refugees have been dying, drowning in the Mediterranean. They've been dying in trucks and trains struggling to get from the MENA countries, Middle East, North Africa, uh, into Europe. And they get packed onto tiny, rickety, overloaded little boats that are supposed to take them to uh, Lampedusa, the Italian island that's nearest to the North African coast, or uh, to Sicily, and in many cases into uh, Italy or even into France directly. Uh, others have been going overland. And whether they're going from Syria or Sudan or Somalia or from Nigeria or Libya, uh, the bottom line is that they are pouring into Europe. And they're all coming from the same areas, North Africa, Middle East. And uh, the the photographs that the papers show and that you can see on television um, are are tragic. They're painful. They 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 evoke feelings of of deep sorrow and mournful sympathy, particularly uh, when the uh, the news media um, r- displaying absolutely no reticence whatsoever even show photographs of corpses and even those of women and children. And so obviously any normal sensitive human being becomes emotionally overwhelmed by those images and any thought of rational policymaking, um, any contemplation of calm and uh, dispassionate analysis flies out of the window. It's utterly out of the question because no normal, sensitive human being with with basic compassion for his fellow human beings is capable of being dispassionate and rational and objective when you're confronted with visual images of painful suffering and death. It's simply not possible. And so... Before I look into the morality of uh, showing these things and the role being played by left-leaning media in trying to establish as a foregone conclusion that that level of suffering compels the Western democracies to open their doors Uh, To the point where recently, in spite of the massive numbers, I mean, six million plus uh, MENA, Middle East, North Africa refugees in France, uh, millions in Germany. Germany just recently announced they'll accept another million. And all of this is, of course, designed to placate the liberal elite and uh, to um, finally 
put aside the specter of World War II for Germany and to show that they really do care for people. And um, meanwhile, what is happening to those countries is is very real. If if there are any of you uh, who remember traveling in France, in Germany, or how about Sweden and Denmark? How about Norway? Uh, any of you go back long enough to remember what travel in these countries was like uh, in the 1970s? And if you go back now, the contrast is quite amazing. What's going on? Well, I thought I'd like to first of all discuss with you something which is fundamental to understanding how the world really works. And that is, we have to ask whether countries have a moral right to do whatever they have to do in order to keep out immigrants. Now, <laughs> it's got to be established on, on a moral basis because particularly the Western democracies uh, insist on using terms such as fairness and moral and compassion. And if you're going to use those terms, then they do have to be defined and they do have to be established. And at the moment, because words like fair have zero definition, and as a matter of fact, as I've sometimes explained, in the Lord's language, which is Hebrew, there is no word for fair precisely because it's an undefined vagueness. Right? When politicians say the rich must pay their fair share of taxes, the rich should answer and say, just tell me how much that is. I just want to know once and for all. Does that mean I pay 50%, 60%, 80%, 90%? How much of my money do you want? Just tell me what fair means. But politicians will never define fair because uh, defining it would mean that they are <laughs> prevented from, at some future date, declaring it to be a 100% confiscatory level. <laughs> and I'm quite serious about that. And so uh, fairness is one of these terms that is used that means absolutely nothing at all. And so uh, what, is it, what is a fair number of immigrants for Germany or France or Italy or Norway or Sweden or Denmark to accept? The essential nature of those states has already been dramatically altered. A violent crime in Norway, Sweden, Denmark is almost 100% the province of uh, Islamic immigrants. Right. almost entirely. You used to be able to walk in any part of Denmark. As a young person on my way to and from school, because I, I went to Bible school in Europe, and uh, I used to travel home for the holidays once a year. Uh, as a young person even, in Denmark, you could walk at any time of the day or night anywhere in the city in Copenhagen. That's no longer true. There are a number of towns in both uh, Norway and uh, and Denmark where the population is now significantly and heavily Islamic and uh, and <laughs> Sharia law is, is in force. 
but because oh holland holland is another case and uh, the populations of these places have largely been subdued by the imposition of the religion of secular fundamentalism and they've been told that all people are the same and national boundaries and uh, religious distinctions are artificial that's right you know the the famous john lennon song of imagine uh, it's a very important song because it does, in a few stanzas, uh, encapsulate the fundamental beliefs of the left, which everybody is the same, everyone's identical, and uh, any attempts at maintaining national identity or religious identity uh, are false, damaging, and destructive. And so the native populations of uh, of whether it's it's and by the way there are there are growing pockets of rebellion, France, England, and of course they are immediately tarred and feathered as uh, right wing racist groups, uh, xenophobic groups. But the truth is that more and more ordinary citizens in France and in Germany and in and Germany is particularly sensitive about it because of World War II, but even the United Kingdom, more and more ordinary citizens are beginning to ask their government, what have you done to our world? And so if there is to be any hope for the United States of America, if there is to be any hope for some of the European countries, then we really do need to establish the morality of the situation. Because if the left is correct and there is zero moral justification for uh, keeping immigrants out, then you may as well know that and accept it and just acknowledge that immigrants are going to continue pouring into the United States. They will pour into Canada. They will pour into the Western democracies of Europe uh, with an increasing Niagara-like cascade that won't stop because we've already established that any attempt to curtail or prevent it is immoral. And liberal elite in the United States of America uh, are in no way immune to this. They, too, have no understanding whatsoever of any moral basis on which immigrants may be kept out. So let's take a look at this from first principles. Let's try and understand how the world really works. One of the very first principles of morality is a hierarchy of obligations. This is so fundamental and so important that I want you to spend a few minutes with your rabbi now just making sure that you understand this both intellectually and emotionally. This has to be something that not only gets into your mind and head, but it also has to make that 12-inch journey down to your heart so as that you are emotionally able to wrap yourself around this. And that means that even when you see photographs of immigrants, you're able to exert intellectual control over your emotions and you're able to say look i'm sorry for them i feel terrible for the suffering they're going through i understand what they're trying to do and why they're trying to do it but uh germany france hungary poland uh, england 
um, Norway, Denmark, these countries have a right to preserve their national integrity, let alone the United States of America. So the very first thing you really got to be able to wrap yourself around is that not all moral obligations are equivalent. There is a hierarchy, and, and we've got to get clear on this. Charity is, is, is never just to the abstract of the poor of the world, or charity needs to be given to the needy. And the very fact that government constantly maintains the existence of this group of Americans called the poor is in itself enough of an indication of what a terrible mistake this is. I'll, I'll try and come back to that particular point, but uh, all I can say is that labeling human beings as poor is not only false and pedantic, but it is um, damaging as well. It, 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 is, it is terminology that can be applied uh, to, a, to an animal that doesn't have enough food, and you can say it's poor in protein, but it makes no sense to speak of human beings as poor largely because we have the capacity to change our destiny. And it's only when outside forces such as government create an aura of poverty and dependence that we human beings take the path of least resistance. And honest to goodness, if if somebody was handing out a living uh, and all I had to do was stand on the street corner and pick up my check, I'd like to think I wouldn't do it, but I'm not sure. The temptation, the temptation to just be taken care of, <laughs> I understand it. It's, it's very powerful. It really is. So the hierarchy of moral obligation means that um, I do not owe the same thing to your children that I owe to my children. And there's a lot of misunderstanding about this. Uh, people know the, the religious dictum, love your neighbor like yourself, right? Well, wait a second. Does this mean that every time you buy yourself a dinner at a nice restaurant, you must buy your neighbor one too? Does this mean every time you get an ice cream, you must get your neighbor one too? You love your neighbor like yourself. How about if you have your house painted? Should you have his painted too? Isn't that what a good neighbor does? No, not at all. Love your neighbor as yourself is something that ancient Jewish wisdom discusses and explains very, very clearly, which is that uh, you are not obligated to do for your neighbor any more than you would expect him to do for you, and vice versa. And so uh, do I expect my neighbor to buy me whatever he buys himself? Of course not. Do I expect him uh, to treat me and my property with respect? Yeah, because I, I expect to do exactly the same thing for him. That's what love your neighbor as yourself means. And, uh, and the idea that we owe all the children of the world the same thing, totally false, totally damaging, totally destructive. As usual, 
I remind you, please, to visit my website. And during the quick break coming up, might be a great time to do it at uh, youneedarabbi.com or rabbidaniellappin.com takes you to the same place. And uh, go and visit the store there because you'll be able to read about many resources that delve far more deeply from a biblical perspective, particularly into some of these topics we're discussing. So a quick break, and when we come back, let's talk about uh, Paul Johnson's book, Intellectuals, for a deeper insight into this idea that we are, uh, what we owe to those closest to us is much more than what we owe to those more distant. We're back, and uh, thank you so much for being part of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Uh, we're discussing uh, the morality of unlimited immigration, and the principle that I want to make absolutely sure that we all have clear is this idea of hierarchy of morality. And so uh, if I've got a limited amount of charity to give, and I have a father or a mother or a sibling or even a child who has certain needs, they have to come first. Uh, you are not being a virtuous person by abandoning your children in favor of helping strangers. The great uh, British historian Paul Johnson wrote a book that is such an important book and so cleverly titled it's called Intellectuals. It's not called The Intellectuals. It's called Intellectuals. Can you hear the disdain? Uh, can you hear the complete disparagement that the author has for these people called Intellectuals? Well, who are these people? Well, uh, Paul Johnson makes a list of them, and he starts talking about them. Um, and I'll give you some of the names. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, of course, the, the French uh, philosopher, founding father of modern socialism. Uh, the poet Shelley, right, the British poet Shelley. Uh, Karl Marx, by the way, another intellectual. Uh, Henry Ibsen. Um, Hemingway. Uh, Bertolt Brecht. Bertrand Russell, there's a good one. Yeah, Bertrand. How about Jean-Paul Sartre? Right, these are famous philosophers who discuss deep issues of morality and goodness and human beings. Um, uh, who else? Uh, Lillian Hellman, by the way, if you know who Lillian Hellman is, that's uh, that's an interesting example as well, and a few more, a number of more. But he explores these people, and what comes across in all of these cases, it's quite extraordinary to see. My friends, what comes across is a picture almost to a man and to a woman of heartless, lacking in compassion, lacking in integrity, scandalous and unpleasant people. These are people, <laughs> these are people who speak in the abstract term of humanity and care and socialism and everybody's got to be taken care of and the rights of mankind. And they were brutal to their friends. They were hideous to their relatives. They were cruel to their children. They were horrible, horrible human beings. Oh, but they were so filled with a love for humanity. 
Right. My friends, you've got to understand that in a biblical Judeo-Christian worldview, the hierarchy is critical. There's no such thing as being a wonderful person who really cares about the world or the environment or the planet, but is horrible to his siblings, but is disdainful and disconnected from his own children. There isn't such a thing as a person who is moral about caring for women's rights, and I'm a feminist, and I want to protect reproductive freedom, but I'm brutally heartless towards my own wife. There's no such thing. Yes, it is totally fair to judge a person's integrity and to judge a person's authenticity with regard to the things they care about, by looking to see how they treat those closest to them. I cannot stress this enough. And so uh, you've got to understand that um, I, I owe an enormous amount to my children. As a parent, I owe a lot to my children. I don't owe nearly as much to your children or to society's children or to the village. Is this becoming clear? Am I making sense? Really want to understand that it's built into us the way we were created, or evolved if you prefer. The way we were created is that we find it very seductive to prefer the distant over the close and the near and the familiar. We preferred even the alien to that which is ours. Do you remember as kids, didn't we always think that Johnny's parents were way cooler than ours, right? Isn't that how it always used to be? And then it was this weird thing where we discovered that Johnny used to prefer hanging out at our house because he thought our parents were cool. And there was this baffling kind of cognitive dissonance that we went through. Say, wait a sec, I mean, your parents are always so terrific. And he says, no, yours are, and you, 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 you don't get it. But we never lose that seductive instinct to prefer the distant from the near. And so that's why it is that uh, when, uh, when rock stars and movie stars do um, – benefits and charitable premieres and concerts to raise money for you know one of the the, one of the very first big ones was to raise money for bangladesh famines in bangladesh what about what about hungry kids in appalachia now there's there's something lacking in glamour to help that which is close but you feel very virtuous when you make yourself feel compassion and do good things for people that are remote and far away. To this day, right, I, I might more instinctively hold a door open for an attractive woman entering a, a coffee shop or something. But do I do so just as enthusiastically for my wife? I should and I hope I do. But I am very aware that in the case of close relatives, I have to remind myself to be on good behavior. And with strangers, it's kind of automatic. 
That's right. That's right. The important thing to understand is that the good Lord created us with a a, a dangerous instinct, right? And it says in Genesis, our instincts are bad, even from our youth. One of the dangerous instincts is to feel more warmly to the distant than the near. And, uh, And sadly, sadly, sometimes the most venomous hatred is reserved for people's parents. Sometimes the way that we behave towards our parents and the way that we speak about our parents, regardless of what they've done, regardless, but their parents, is is, is language and behavior that we would never inflict on a stranger. Well, that is perverse and upside down, and true biblical morality requires that we treat special, especially those closest to us, and we do the most for those closest to us. Uh, so, in general, what you've got to get is that the secular left prefers doing good for everybody with no particularity at all. Um I'll give you an example. Here is the subconscious moral logic that underpins the politician's dream known as the death tax. Of course, sometimes it is falsely called the inheritance tax, but it's really the death tax. And um, first of all, what's wrong with it? Well, what's wrong with it is that, uh, first of all, I have already paid tax on everything I have. And uh, everybody has. And so the notion that your passing on is a taxable event is deeply and profoundly repugnant. Um, It is immoral and downright evil. There is absolutely no justification for it. To re-tax money that I already was taxed on when I got it in the first place, this money is my money. Admittedly, if I went out and bought something, I should probably pay sales tax if it's in a state with sales tax, or I should uh, pay a property tax if uh, if I'm buying a piece of real estate or a car, whatever whatever the, the law is. But an additional tax just because you pass on and before your children, your legitimate heirs, get hold of your assets, the government takes a significant slice of it. What on earth? earth could possibly be the justification for such a reprehensible and indefensible evil act (laughs) i'll tell you it's very simple it's a violation of the law of moral particularity take a look and see see what happens is that the way the good lord designed the world is that I and you and all of us are filled with a powerful desire to help our children, to everything we can for our children. Now, those of you who uh, prefer to uh, subscribe to the view that we are here because of a lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution, well, why you uh, will assume that there is a simple biological imperative, right, to protect our genetic output Uh, We take care of our kids, whatever it is. I think everybody can agree that we all feel a deep desire to do everything that we can for our children. 
And so um, the good Lord sets it up, and the laws of inheritance are laid out extraordinarily carefully in the five books of Moses. Um, and essentially, um, you know, you don't you don't tamper with them. Essentially, uh, the your uh, your income goes to your children, and there's a reason why it's male children more than female children. Um, a lot of that has to do with uh, not interfering and imperiling the marriages of your daughters. But again, there are ways of dealing with that. For the moment, however, let's just say children, and um, and the idea that I can actually leave something of significance to my children is a powerful motivation to keep me productive, to stop me from retiring, to keep me focused on trying to serve other human beings and in return uh, make the money that they pay me for serving them so that I will have more to leave my children. So the very fact that everything I own goes to my children after I pass on to the arms of the Lord, well, that motivates me and impels me to be even a better citizen. I'm not going to imperil that. And that's how it works. It's a very positive thing for society. Along comes the secular left, and they say, wait a moment, wait a moment. All children have an equal right to benefit from your assets. Why just yours? Are you trying to make a big deal of this thing called family? We don't believe in family. After all, we are nothing more than sophisticated animals, right? And when did you see an animal that makes a big deal of family? That, by the way, is why it is that the socialist-founded institutions in early Israel were the kibbutz uh, system. And in the kibbutz system, they took all the kids away from the parents and raised them in uh, children's units. And this was part of the early communist dream because it's wrong for parents to have any particular relationship with their children more than any other children. Are you, you, this should be sending shudders up your spine, right? It really should. And, uh, and that's the way they view things. Since we're nothing but sophisticated animals, when did you ever see a puppy show any great relationship to its father? Or when did a, uh, a, a, a racehorse show any signs of recognition to its, to the father that sired it, most likely artificially anyways? But even if it wasn't, he still isn't going to know. Animals don't recognize their fathers. And after a certain short period of time goes by, they don't recognize their mothers either. Right? They don't. Once the initial nursing period is over and they're, they're on their own, they're on their own. And that's how the left believes that it ought to be with human beings as well. You know, we understand that human babies are a little bit different from ducklings and alligators and llamas and lions and leopards because they need a longer period. But fine. But that doesn't mean that there's any special relationship. And that's one of the reasons that the entire uh, philosophy of the uh, of the left right now is that children's acculturation must take place in school, not with parents. And that's why there is a very strong opposition to private schools. There's very strong opposition to homeschooling. In fact, uh, regardless of the fact that in the United States of America, between 1.8 and 2 million children are being homeschooled, uh, the left opposes this very strongly. And I just recently read a statement from a government bureaucrat 
um, saying that homeschooling has to be deeply regulated and it is very important that all homeschooling students must be supplied with world views and philosophical approaches different from those of their parents. Right? That's it because it's children belong to society, not to parents, right? It takes a village to raise a child. Remember hearing that phrase once? Because that's what they really believe. You don't have any special relationship with your child. You just don't. And, um, and so I'll explain, I'll explain how the, uh, the property tax ties into that. And uh, I will also uh, let you into a little secret about uh, how I feel regarding uh, the government's concern for American blood versus, I don't know, Iraqi, Afghani, uh, Syrian blood or any other blood. Uh, that might shock you, if not surprise you. So let's do that. My website, you know. You know we don't finish a segment without me urging you to uh, delve more deeply at my website to make sure you sign on to subscribe to re- receive my weekly email thought tools. And uh, in general, contact me um, with the Contact Us uh, tab there so we're able to, to stay in close touch. I really do tend to think of listeners of this podcast as part of a very special group of friends, people uh, with whom I have a, a deep and close relationship, and I encourage you to participate in that as well. Rabbi Daniel Lappin.com. Got it? www.rabbidaniellappin.com. Watch out for that double L, right? After Daniel and Lappin. It's, it's a problem. It's a problem. I really retrospectively uh, would have urged my parents to name me Marmaduke. Okay, you know, Marmaduke Lappin, right? That, that would be easier. But Daniel Lappin means you've got to spell it D-A-N-I-E-L and then put another L for the L-A-P-I-N and then you've got to go Rabbi in, in the front of that. And uh, so you've got RabbiDanielLappin.com and um, I want to make sure you do have a chance to, to visit there and make contact with me. Quick break, folks, and uh, your rabbi will return. We're back, okay? Your radio rabbi, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. My website... Rabbi Daniel Lappin.com. And uh, talking about the idea that I have a special relationship with my children that's very different from the relationship I have with your children. I care about your children. Uh, if I see them doing something they shouldn't do, I'll let you know. If they play in the street, I'll rescue them out of the street and come tell you. Um, if. Uh, if um, you're not home and your child comes home from school, there's no one there. They're welcome to come to my house and uh, and my family will take care of them till you get home. No problem. But uh, I will do everything I can to educate my children and to pay for whatever I got to pay for to get my children the the education they need. I don't intend doing that for your children. Don't want to do it for your children. And there is no morality at all in the Bible that calls for me to do it for your children, unless unless you're in some temporary special need and you appeal to me, uh, that's a different story. But uh, under ordinary circumstances, I owe much more to my family than I owe to anybody else's family. I owe more to my neighborhood than to a neighborhood across the country. I, know, I owe more to my county, my town, my city. I owe more to my state than I do to any other state. I owe more to my country, my national entity, than I do to yours or anyone else's. 
It's all in a hierarchy. And that's really important to get. So when uh, governments love the death tax, one of the reasons they love it is it makes sense to them. Because what it does is it helps to shatter the relationship between parents and children. It helps to undermine family. And as long as family exists, it is very difficult for people to become truly the ward of government, truly dependent on government. It's impossible for government to become the ultimate tyrant and the ultimate ruling despot if people still have their families. But if we can shatter the relationship between people and their families, then all that is left is for people to have relationships with the state. And that's one of the reasons that one of the most reliable voting blocks for the Democratic Party is single women. Married women are conservative for the most part. But overwhelmingly, single women tend to see the government as their husbands. The government will take care of them. And so if your vision is bigger and bigger government, then you really want marriages to either not take place or to fail. And so all I can say is that at the moment, the left is enjoying an unprecedented period of victory in the United States of America right now, tragically. But uh, the, the death tax comes along and says, oh, okay, so you're passing on. Well, it's pretty clear that the moment your soul leaves your body, that you no longer own the stuff you have your money, your car. You don't own that anymore, right? Because you're not there. Everybody agrees with that. And so the only question is, what happens at that instant your soul departs your body? And uh, I would say, based on biblical morality, that at that instant, it belongs to your children. Instantaneously, it goes right over. You don't need to have a will read. You don't, nothing. It's straightforward. Now, uh, if you don't trust your children, well, that's too bad because you had a lifetime to, to raise them properly. And if you feel that you cannot allow your children to pick up from where you leave off, well, then you have to make other arrangements, I suppose. But that's, that's pretty sad. Nonetheless, what remains for sure is that it doesn't go to the government. But wait. If you are part of the left, then that's exactly who it goes to, because they say, oh, we agree. It doesn't belong to you. You passed on. Of course, it can't belong to you. Who does it belong to? It belongs to the next generation. It belongs to all the people, especially the children, not just your children. And we, the government, will take over to make sure the distribution will be fair. But we want all the children of society to benefit from your possessions, not just your children. That's not fair, is it? And that's what they really believe. That is the, 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 the moral foundation of the inherently evil death tax. And so uh, we've got to understand that the way they see it is that all children and all heirs should benefit when somebody passes away, not just your family. But this could hardly be more false. You've got to remember, I have greater responsibility to those I have more connection with. Now, to just clarify, 
we need to just clarify for a second. Does this mean that God prefers me to give to those closer to me? Yes, you got it exactly right. Why? To incentivize connection. That's the idea. And that's why it is that the governmental system of charity is so wrong because it creates a sense of entitlement. It's no longer even called the dole or welfare or the loving kindness of your fellow citizens. No, it's your right. And so when government takes your money and then redistributes it, quote, to the poor, unquote, then what they really are saying is that the poor don't need to do anything about their lives. They don't need to do anything about connection. They don't need to be involved because their check will come whatever they do. It's immoral, it's destructive, and it ultimately will obliterate society and its institutions. The biblical view of charity is that um, I have to give the charity, no question about it. I have to give. But to who? That is my choice. And so if you are somebody who feels you're going to need a hand up, maybe you don't know. Maybe you. Maybe we're all in that situation. of You never know what tomorrow is going to bring. So why don't you just build good, strong relationships with as many people as possible? So as that if, God forbid, you're ever in need, there'll be a whole lot of people there who'll give you their charitable donations. So you'll be able to benefit. And that's exactly what God wants to see us do. Focus on building, maintaining, nurturing relations with one another. And the biblical charitable system is designed explicitly to incentivize us to do just that. It's wonderful. And uh, and the result is that people who could care less about other people, people who are mean and nasty to other people, if they're ever in need, it's going to be really hard for them. And that's just how it has to be. It's very sad, but it's important that all the young people in society take a look and see. You see why that person hasn't got anything and why nobody's caring for him and nobody's helping him? Because he never cared about other people. He never bothered to marry a wife. He never bothered to raise children. He never bothered to build relationships. He decided to just take care of himself. Well, guess what? When things turned around and he needed other people, they're not there for him. It sounds callous, doesn't it? But you've got to think of tomorrow, not just today. You know, they say one of the differences between a politician and a statesman is that a politician just thinks of the next election. But a statesman thinks about the next generation, and that's what we have to do. When we're thinking about public policy, when we're thinking about uh, laws and uh, societal strategies, we have to think about what will be the result in one or two or three generations. And for a, a charitable system to work this way, so as that your ability to receive that which you need when things are going badly for you, that depends on the investment you made in other people in earlier times. That's right. That is exactly the way it's supposed to work. Well, I said that uh, the principle of moral hierarchy means that uh, I'm obligated much more to my family than to my neighborhood, much more to my neighborhood than to the city, more to my city than the county, more to my county than the state, more to the state 
than my nation and more to my nation than any other nation. It's really important. And for that reason, the government must care much more about one harmed American than 1,000 harmed or hurt or killed Iraqis or Syrians or anybody else. I'm not talking about God. I'm sure that to God, everyone's blood is the same color. I, I, I have no special information on what God thinks about anybody else or any, anyone in particular. I have enough trouble trying to figure out what he thinks of me. Not always reassuring. But, uh, but I'm not talking about God. I'm talking about the United States government. The United States government has the obligation to protect even the little finger of an American citizen, even at the cost of the lives of a hundred foreign nationals. Yeah, that's right. And that's the way it used to be. Countries understood that they sent in the army. If another nation did something to one of their citizens, you sent the army in, because otherwise your citizens would never be safe anywhere. Imagine what it would be like to be an American in a world in which any country that harmed an American really, really paid the price. And uh, this is why it is, as, as painful as painful as it is for me to say this, because I, I feel the, the, the agony and I, I'm aware of the torment and emotionally I can wrap myself around it and, and bring tears to my eyes, a lump to my throat. But I have to tell you that reprisals make sense. If terrorists um, come into your uh, in, into your town and blow up a family, or they blow up a restaurant, or they, then the right thing for your government to do is to go along and go to where that terrorist came from. And um, I'm sorry, but they have to execute, you know, twenty, thirty people from that place. It sounds terrible, but it isn't really because. What that will do is stop the problem right away. Because terrorists, particularly of the Islamic persuasion, are there any others right now? Hard to think of any. And probably are, but I can't think of them. But uh, terrorists of the Islamic persuasion don't mind losing their own lives if they can take infidels like us along with them. But they sure mind the lives being taken of their family and friends. Sad? But necessary, because to the United States government or to any national government, the lives of your people have to be much more expensive than the lives of anybody else. This is all part of the law of moral hierarchy. My government must care more about American blood than about anyone else's. It's very important. To, to realize how basic this is, that I'm not presenting something to you that's, that's weird. The only reason it sounds strange, if it does sound strange to you, is because, like all of us, you know, advertising works. Advertising really works, doesn't it? And I'll explain what I mean by that. Because there is such a thing as moral and political propaganda, and it works just like any other form of advertising. Go to RabbiDanielAppen.com. Go on. Right now, go to RabbiDanielAppen.com because you've got a minute because we're going to a quick break. And then when we come back, 
we'll talk about uh, how advertisements work and what that teaches us about political propaganda. Don't go away. Okay. Uh, big advertisement runs for uh, a Volvo motor car, shall we say. This doesn't mean that everyone who sees the ad runs out to buy a Volvo. doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that when you show that ad to millions of eyeballs, in that collection of millions of people watching, there are a certain number of people who are in the market to buy a new car in the next few days. I don't know what that number is, but it's a, it's a, it's, it's a tangible number. And uh, of that number of people who are going to be buying a car in the next few days, a certain number of them are going to be motivated by the Volvo reputation for, quote, safety. Okay? And so if that ad comes out at exactly the right moment, of course it doesn't mean that everyone who sees the ad is going to run out and buy a Volvo. Obviously not. But it leaves an impression in the hearts and minds of millions of people because what you see through the eyes exerts a strong emotional influence and uh, if you happen to be thinking of buying a car well you're now going to pay attention to that and of those people who pay attention to that some of them are going to be influenced some of them are going to go test drive it and of those who test drive bottom line is many 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 more people are now going to buy a volvo this week because of that ad than would have at the ad not run how do i know that (laughs) because businesses are usually not stupid And they wouldn't pay money for advertising if it didn't work. Of course it works. It doesn't mean that each and every person who sees it goes out and does something. No. But there are subtle changes in each and every one of us every time we see an ad. And it's cumulative. And on top of that, there are those of us who are already primed to purchase. That's why advertising works. In exactly the same way, when an idea gets beaten and beaten and beaten, and an, and an idea gets promoted and promoted and promoted and promulgated and promulgated and promulgated and propagandized and propagandized and propagandized. It doesn't mean that you instantly change your mind, but it means the cumulative effect starts subtly opening up a different way of looking at things for you. That's called political propaganda. It's just another form of advertising. Its goal is not commercial, but it's political. And uh, the whole language of political correctness, all of that's part of it. It's, uh, it's the left using every power and force at its disposal to inculcate you to believe that certain things are just wrong, immoral, unfair. That how you refer to things or people, you know, there are universities now in America where you're not allowed to use the term male and female. I'm very serious about that, by the way. You're not allowed to use the word male and female. Why? Because it unfairly suggests that there's only a binary gender structure in humanity, male or female. And we all know that's not true, right? There's a spectrum. People can be uh, partially male, partially female. They can be this. Or, uh, you, you, I'm sure you don't need me to uh, disgust you with all the details. But uh, bottom line, and we do have to talk about this, which is why is there so much of an obsession on the left with doing away with gender particularity? Why are they d- desperate to convert the binary structure of male and female into an utterly formless spectrum? ranging from male to female with many, many, many stops in between. 
How do you think about that? But I will talk about it. But right now, what we uh, we do have to understand is that uh, as propaganda works its magic upon us little by little, uh, we we intuitively reject some of the things I've been talking about, the idea that um, American blood should be much more expensive to an American government than foreign blood. In other words, they should be willing to spill any amount of foreign blood to protect even a drop of American blood. That's the moral way for a country to operate. And I understand that it's hard to hear this. And you just have to know the reason is because of the effect of propaganda, the endless bombardment of wrong ideas through entertainment, through politics, through the culture, everywhere. And little by little, you start you start buying into this. And so when I speak and uh, make points that are, are basic, basic, basic Western morality, they sound weird, don't they? they? They sound alarming. They sound disturbing. They give you a queasy feeling in your stomach. Well, you know, I don't want to make you feel bad. But neither do I want to just massage you with warm butter, because that wouldn't be doing any of us any good. So I want to make sure that we all get this absolutely clear. I'll give you a thought experiment that will help you see how utterly wrong it is for um, for an American to say, we're all, all human beings are the same. It's not true. They may be the same philosophically, they may be the same uh, in God's eyes, but in terms of American policy, no, they're not all the same, not at all. And let me give you the thought experiment that I think might be helpful in in um, wrapping yourself around the concept. I once um, had this uh, debate in um, uh, in an auditorium where I was debating a woman who took the opposite position, that uh, a life is a life and human beings are human beings. And I knew that I couldn't say to her, well, madam, that's because you've bought into socialism. The song that sings in your heart is the international, the song, the international song of communism. Unite the world. One world government. <laughs> uh, I couldn't say that to her. But I fully realized that the philosophical framework that supported her view was all human beings are the same. Religions, artificial false distinctions that must be eliminated, national national identity must be eliminated and if we manage to obliterate religious distinction and we manage to obliterate national identity there'd be peace all human beings would love one another that's right because we've taken away all these things that form us into groups isn't it funny that with its obsession about removing the group distinctions of religion and nationality the left builds its own group distinctions. Gender, they pit men against women. They pit black against white. They pit rich against poor as they see it. Isn't that odd? It's the strangest thing. The left preaches, oh, tolerance and love and we're all the same. But the practical outcome is greater tension between races greater tension between genders, 
and greater tension between classes. Isn't that weird? Now, business doesn't preach loving kindness. Business doesn't preach anything. Business goes about individuals trying to take care of their business and one another's needs, their customers. And you know what the result is? The result is people caring more and more for one another. That's right. You you don't think, if you're in business, you know what I'm talking about. If you're not, imagine you're in business, you've got a supplier, and your customers buy stuff from you, and you depend on your supplier. Now, if there's a big run on stuff, if you have a good relationship with your supplier, he keeps you supplied. If he doesn't, you have to put an out-of-stock sign, and you lose business. One of the reasons that businesses love their suppliers, they take care of their suppliers and their vendors, they look after them. And they care for them. It may be for a selfish reason. But think about this for a moment. Would you rather have a neighbor who loves you in his heart, but when you're not looking, he keys your car, kicks your kids, and kills your cat? Would you like that? But he loves you. Or would you rather have a neighbor who, you know, He's not so crazy about people like you, Jewish or whatever you are. Your neighbor deep down, yeah, you know what, he's, in general, he's probably a bit prejudiced against your kind. But for the last 15 years, he's been the most wonderful neighbor you can imagine. In other words, my friends, what I'm asking you is what's more important, the way people behave or the way they think? The left focuses on what people think, and that's why they talk about hate crimes and racism and anti-Semitism and all, all these things. And it's all thought, by the way, right? Because, I mean, do I really care if somebody doesn't like Jews? No, absolutely not, as long as he doesn't vandalize my property or assault me or kill me. But there are already laws against that. All we need is for those laws to be enforced, and I don't care what's in his mind. The left abandons those laws, refuses to protect citizens, and applies draconian penalties for wrong thinking. What's fascinating is you might even work for a company that has arranged re-education classes. Echoes of Stalinism, my friends. Echoes of Cambodia. Echoes of China. Yes, there are companies now that arrange for um, attitudinal programs where you need to be taught about diversity. You need to be talk about, taught about the language you can use. This is nothing other than Stalinist re-education camp. And the fact that it's happening at uh, your local Hyatt Hotel conference room, sponsored by your company, doesn't make it any more palatable. You're being told how to think. It's funny, isn't it? The old liberalism used to preach freedom of speech. Remember the free speech movement? That seems like 100 years ago. 1960s, free speech, that's gone. But uh, we've, got to, we've got to now picture, if you will, uh, this woman I'm debating, and uh, she believes all people are the same, and that I'm profoundly racist and xenophobic for suggesting that uh, a national government owes more to its own citizens than it owes to other citizens. You can see how this is going to bring us around to the immigration question pretty soon, can't you? Um, but uh, she obviously holds that um, that 
people who are native-born Americans, who are citizens or who are here legally, have no more rights than people who fled across the borders because all human beings are exactly the same. She really believes that. And so eventually um, I said to her, I'm going to ask you a hypothetical. The hypothetical is that um, you hear a noise in your house. You've got a, a bunch of children. You've got you know, three or four or five children. You hear a noise. You're alone in the house, and you go downstairs with a gun, and you discover there's an intruder. And let us stipulate now that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that his intention is to kill your children. That is what's going to happen. And the only way to stop him is to kill him. And she couldn't deal with it. It was it was too much cognitive dissonance. So she started saying, well, I'd shoot him in the leg. I said, look, <laughs> I understand. Uh, this is a hypothetical. We're trying to get at a moral principle here. So, yes, obviously, um, and if you could use a taser on him, that would also be good. And, and if you could convert him to a law-abiding citizen by waving a wand at him, that would also be nice. But that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a choice. The choice is, will you shoot him and kill him, or will you allow him to kill your children? Now, I knew she didn't actually have any children, and I think it might have been different if she had that emotional connection, but she didn't. But there was still something so grotesque about her answer that the audience gasped. You could hear it. And she said, um, he has just as much right to live as my children do. And people gasped because everyone knew instinctively in their hearts that was wrong. Not everybody was able to explain it. Not everyone could have debated it. Not everybody could have challenged her. But everybody knew that what she said was wrong. There's something not right about a mother being willing to let somebody else kill her children if the only way to stop him is to kill him. Because the overwhelming majority of normal mothers, not just American mothers, but the normal mothers in the whole world, and I'm not talking about animals, I'm talking about humans, would unhesitatingly destroy somebody set on harming her children if there was no other way to stop it and that's healthy and proper and correct provided there's no other way to, i mean this is a hypothetical in in the majority of cases in real life this doesn't happen thank god most of the time but if it did that's that's the answer and um and and this is so grotesque to hear a woman say no i i wouldn't kill the stranger if i had if it would save my children it's just as grotesque to have a government that is not willing to save americans by killing people who are not american it's grotesque absolutely morally bizarre we are absolutely supposed to act with greater commitment to those who are closest to us even at a cost to those further and more disconnected from us so we have to go back now to uh, whether or not a country has the right to keep others out of that country. We're going to look at two thought experiments to help with this analysis. You okay with that? I hope so, because as soon as we come back, we'll start off with the analysis of the lifeboat. Website, you know already. You need a rabbi.com. Y-O-U, you need a rabbi.com. And uh, please uh, be in touch with me through the website, sign on to the uh, Thought Tools, check out the resources at the store, and uh, in just a moment, stay tuned, because I'll be back with a lifeboat analogy. Don't go anywhere. Back again, everybody, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. And uh, we're looking at the question of whether countries have the right to keep um, people out, 
can you say we don't want any immigrants or we don't want those immigrants? We don't want any immigrants. What, can countries do that or is that intrinsically immoral? That's the question we're asking ourselves. I said one of the analogies, in order to understand that I owe more to people in my country than to people in other countries, and you'll see that this then is the beginnings, it's the first foundational stone that we're laying as we try to build the moral foundation of immigration control. If indeed I owe more to my people, the people in my country, and the uh, arrival of other people at the moment is damaging to my nation, damaging to my people, then the fact that they have nowhere else to go, the fact that they're desperate, the fact that they're refugees, the fact that they're good people, the fact that they're hardworking, the fact that they love America, whatever it is, I have every right to keep them out because their interests are not equivalent to the interests of my people. Okay, That's what we're trying to understand. Let's look at the lifeboat analogy, uh, a very painful idea. And again, uh, for many people, difficult to accept this as a theoretical, intellectual hypothetical. For many people, they're incapable of not translating it into concrete terms and then saying, well, there must be another solution. I, we're, we're not talking about that. We're talking about this being the reality. Now let's analyze it on that basis. What's the reality? The reality is a shipwreck, and you're in the lifeboat. It's uh, the Titanic, and it's the morning of the 15th of April, 1912, and you're floating in a life. I shouldn't really, I shouldn't really talk about the, the Titanic because that sort of violates my uh, request here that you don't concretize it and that uh, you leave it as a theoretical. So let's let's just leave it as a theoretical. Um, the the boat's gone down, the sun rises, and you are in a small lifeboat, nothing else to be seen on the horizon, and um, the lifeboat is dangerously overloaded, and uh, there are waves, and every uh, now and then a bigger wave comes along and uh, laps to within an inch of the freeboard of the, of the lifeboat. Normally, lifeboats aren't supposed to be that loaded, You're supposed to have about... Uh, two feet of freeboard, but uh, this lifeboat is horribly overloaded, and uh, you're in it with uh, 70 or 80 or 90 other people, and you're all uh, huddled together, uh, very, very cramped, and um, and there's shocks even, and uh, and now all of a sudden you notice a uh, a door from your ship that went down. There's a door floating in the water, and holding onto it are six more people. And you know beyond a certainty that the next pair of hands that grips the gunnels of the lifeboat and tries to haul themselves aboard, the boat goes down and all 70 people drown. What do you do? What do you do as these people come along? These are desperate human beings facing drowning. What do you do? What is the moral thing to do as they leave the door they were clinging to and start swimming desperately over the intervening 30 or 40 yards to where the lifeboat is, and they reach up to grab the gunnel. And as they do that, the boat tips alarmingly, and a whole lot of water slops into the boat. And if they don't leave go at that moment, the boat is going to fill and everybody sinks. My friends, it's a theoretical, and no human being should ever be put in this position, but... 
If you were, what's the moral thing to do? The answer is not that you all go down. I know that many of you are going to find that appealing. Many of you are going to say, well, let's all be unified in death rather than separate us between those who are going to live and those who are going to die. Wrong. From a biblical and moral perspective, those who God placed in the lifeboat, those who for whatever reason were in the lifeboat, have the obligation to keep themselves alive. And if that means that they have to wrap the fingers of anyone who grabs on with a belaying pin to force them to leave go, even though that in so doing you are condemning them to drown, you have to do it. It's not murder. It's not killing. It is a painful, horrible action that is nonetheless exactly what you have to do. How shocking is that? That lifeboat thought experiment or that lifeboat model is a very important one to understand because it, it, it really goes to the heart of realizing that morality isn't about what feels good. Morality is about doing what is in conformity with the architect of the universe. That's what morality means. If you're talking about a biblical morality, the word morality by itself obviously doesn't really mean anything. You've always got to specify, for instance, uh, the morality of uh, Islamic terrorists is very different from the, from the morality of a Christian missionary. You can't compare them. It's two different moralities. But it's wrong to say that the Islamic terrorist is not operating within a moral system. He is. It's a Quranic moral system. It's not a biblical moral system, but it's his moral system. And don't you think that, uh, that secularism, socialism, progressivism, liberalism, communism, don't you think they have moral system as well? Sure they do. Sure. Absolutely. And you can see it being applied in, in much of American life today, unfortunately, just revealing the extent to which it has swept like a tidal wave of philosophical conquest um, over the country and over the culture. But in a Judeo-Christian, biblically-based moral context, the folks in the lifeboat have a moral obligation to keep those out who would sink the boat. Absolutely. Absolutely. What do you do on a lifeboat? Same sort of situation. There's a guy suddenly pulls out a battery-operated Makita 18-volt high-power electric drill with a two-inch bit, whole drilling bit, and he starts, you know, you all hear this buzzing noise. You look, and there's this guy drilling a hole under his seat through the hull of the lifeboat. What do you do with him? What if the only way to stop him is to shoot him dead? If that were, obviously, there are other ways, right? You can knock him out. You can paralyze. You can, but if, you, if there was no other way to stop him and that hole would sink the boat and drown all the 70 survivors on the lifeboat, if you had to kill him, you would. Do you follow what I'm saying? This is really important to understand. And, um, and that allows us to uh, prepare for the second, the second thought experiment. Okay, the second thought experiment um, is uh, the following. Imagine you've got a bunch of houses in your little housing development in your neighborhood, right? It's, it's a few blocks. I don't know. You've got, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 houses, whatever it is. 
And um, let's treat those houses in your neighborhood as if they were a metaphor for countries, shall we say, on a continent. Now, work with me here for a little bit. Leaving aside for now, whatever the reasons are for the fact that my house is lovely, you know, reasons such as my hard work, my self-restraint, my self-discipline, my impulse control over the years, leave aside all of that. Whatever it is, my house is by far and away the nicest home in the neighborhood. The other homes, you got uh, deferred maintenance. They're overgrown. The gardens aren't taken care of. The paint isn't good. The paint's very worn. The siding is falling off. Uh, there's moss growing on the roof. Shingles are falling off. Uh, there's a broken window here and a broken window there. It so happens that I take care of my house. And um, I will tell you this, we're hospitable. Uh, we not only give money to Habitat for Humanity or whatever housing charity you want to support or we want to support, uh, and we often have visitors staying over in our guest room, okay? Um, but the other homes, they're just not looked after. And look, by the way, I, I understand, right? I'd also rather spend my money on cars and boats and entertainment and, and big screen televisions than paying money for landscaping or new siding or fixing up the plumbing that's that's uh, leaking. Of, of course, it's more fun to buy stuff than to maintain your house. I understand. But it so happens I'm the only one who, who looks after the house in my neighborhood. Everybody else's houses, yeah, you know what they are. Anyways... Many kids from the neighborhood come over to play with my kids all the time. By the way, think of these as tourists. Sometimes they stay for lunch. There have been a few times where I've noticed that some of the kids in the neighborhood come over in the morning, in talking about the summertime, okay, and then they stay for lunch, and uh, my wife makes a lovely dinner, and they don't go home. And we even drop hints. We say things like, don't your family expect you back for dinner? No, they say, it's fine, we can stay. And um, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous about this because it's starting to happen more and more. You see where we're going, right? And then I suddenly discover that some of them actually bring sleeping bags with them. Pretty soon, I got a whole dormitory going in the upstairs family room. And then some of their parents who visited didn't leave either. And they also slept over. And then they showed up at the breakfast table. And the first thing I knew was when a neighbor from four houses away walks into breakfast in his dressing gown and says, please pass the cereal. And I'm thinking to myself, this is weird. But my family and me, we're the only ones who think it's weird. And I'll tell you the honest truth. Some of my kids kind of think it's cool. And I'm getting more and more disturbed by this. After a little while, a few days go by, I check into my living room. I come back from work, stop in at my living room where I like sitting down with a newspaper for a few minutes, and there's about a dozen people cooking on the fireplace. This is the fireplace that in winter my wife and I sit around and we play games with the children. And now this fireplace, these folks are gathered around and they're holding hot dogs on skewers into my fireplace, and then every now and then when the hot dog's done, they slap it in a, in a bun and, and gobble it up. Meanwhile, they got blankets rolled out across my living room floor. Some of my kids thinks this, think this is a hoot. They love it. It's, it feels like summer camp to them. And my wife tries to get the kids to come into the kitchen for dinner, 
and then some of these folks wander into the kitchen for dinner. Pretty soon, I go to the pantry for some popcorn, and there isn't any. It's all been cooked in the living room, and the remnant debris, you know, all those unpopped burnt kernels, well, they're scattered over what used to be my cream-colored wall-to-wall carpeting. And then I discover that I can't drive to work. You know why? Well, I'll tell you. I'll tell you, coming right back. Quick break, right? Stay with us. And you know what I expect you to do during the break, or not during the break, after the podcast, or if not after the podcast, some other time. You know what I expect you to do. RabbiDanielLappin.com When we come back, imagine the scenario of my house in the neighborhood, and now I can't get to work. I get into the car, and I want to go to work. What's happened? I'll tell you. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. I'm so happy you're listening to this podcast. I, I really am. And uh, I've got to tell you, I'm embarrassed about it, by, but I'm o- obsessive about the, the numbers of downloads and listens. I, I monitor them. <laughs> I watch them. I wish I didn't. But, uh, but I guess it, it, helps me, it helps me feel what I believe to be a very strong connection that exists between you and me. Um, especially if you've listened to several of these podcasts already, and, and this is the ninth one I've done for The Blaze, uh, you'd, you'd already, um, I think, have sort of started getting a feel for, for me, where I am, uh, where I come from, what I'm based on. And, uh, and if you're still listening, well, that might mean, and I hope it does mean, that you're comfortable with it and you find it uh, shedding a laser beam of clarity onto things in your life. Um, helping you understand how the world really works, which is the fundamental holy mission of your rabbi. Uh, and, uh, and, and so watching the numbers and knowing that you're downloading, knowing that you're listening, uh, helps me almost visualize you while I'm talking. It helps me see that, that we really are a community of like-minded people. And so um, I'm, I'm painting a picture for you where I'm comparing shall we say, nations on a continent. Maybe we're talking about uh, uh, people uh, in Europe, people in Germany, shall we say. And then down the block, you've got other houses like Turkey and Syria and uh, Iraq and Pakistan and Libya and Somalia and Sudan and Liberia. And all of these different houses in the neighborhood, right? And um, I noticed that uh, kids from all the other houses start spending a lot of time in our house. And then I see they stay over. They, they're not leaving. And then I notice some of their parents coming as well because they're little anchor babies, right? <laughs> right? I shouldn't say that. And, uh, and the parents come over to my house. And initially, they just come to visit or they say, we're just here to pick up little Johnny. But they don't pick up little Johnny. In fact, turns out they brought a sleeping bag also. They're staying. They unroll their bags in my living room. So now I've got people upstairs in the family room. I've got people in the living room. I've got people in the guest room. And uh, I want to go to work now, and I can't go to work. You know why? Well, because there are dozens of supermarket wagons that my uninvited guests have left in my driveway. Right. That's what's happened. I can't get out because some of them are filled with with soda cans and bottles. Other, others are empty. They just 
they just brought them. Others have blankets in them. But my whole driveway is filled with um, with uh, with supermarket wagons. Well, it's disturbing because I can't get to work. But it's also disturbing that you know some of my kids still think this is kind of fun. They 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 have. A supermarket wagon races on the driveway but meanwhile there's like 20 of them there. i can't get my car out to get to work and what's more i got to tell you that some of my kids and my wife are starting to feel threatened because now when our visitors demand food or candy um the the, the there's a slightly sinister overtone which is you need to to go and get go shopping there used to be candy in the pantry. Now there's nothing there. Well, yes, you finished it. Well, go and get more. And uh, my my wife is feeling it to be a bit menacing. And some of my older kids are feeling very uncomfortable. By that time, there are a bunch of families from other houses in the neighborhood that aren't as nice as ours that are camping outside our master bedroom. And so I have to step over them when I want to go to my room or come out of my room. And what's more, they're insisting on using our private ensuite bathroom. That's the one, the private one that my wife and I use for ourselves. And they start challenging us. They say, do you think you're better than we are? Why shouldn't we use your bathroom? And I don't know what to say. What do I do? Or more appropriately, what should I have done? There's no flaw, is there, in this metaphor for what immigration has done to Europe and is doing to America? It's a, it's a pretty accurate picture, I'm afraid. That's what it is. But you see, don't you, that um, if you would imagine a, uh, a less dramatic scenario, you know, I come home from work and there's a bunch of people I've never seen before camped in my living room. They put up a little tent. They got a fire going there. And I say to them, hey, get out. They say, whoa, 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 wait a second, wait a second. Let's talk about fairness, right? Let's settle for what's fair. You've got the rest of the house. This can be our room. And I say to them, look, I'm going to get my baseball bat. And if that isn't enough, I'm going to get my 357 Magnum. But I'll tell you one thing. In the next 60 seconds, you're out of this house. If you're not, we're going to have a very big problem. They say, wait, 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 peace, brother, peace. We just want to work out what's fair. I say, look. We start off with what's mine is mine and what's yours is yours. And then, if you like, we can talk about what's fair. I'll tell you what I'm willing to do and what I'm not willing to do. But we don't start off with you having seized something of mine. We don't start off with you having moved into my house. That's out of the question. Out you go. And uh, is it already too late? By the time these people are camped in my house, maybe it's too late, right? That's a different discussion. I'm not talking about practical behavior here. I'm not, I'm not here to tell France or Germany or England or Scandinavia what to do. I'm here to find out with you whether there is a moral structure, a biblically-based morality that says I don't have to let immigrants into my country if I choose not to. Don't have to, no matter how bad their situation is. Think of the people holding onto the door in the ocean trying to get in the lifeboat. So um, you got to see that this really starts giving you, I think, a, a fairly good idea of what is wrong with the current situation. Yes, the their houses, their countries are in bad shape. I understand all of that. That still doesn't make it obligatory on me to let them into my house. Not at all. Now, uh, 
you know, I, I tell you about books from time to time, and it doesn't mean that I'm necessarily saying you must go and read those books because it depends on other priorities in your life. If you're a, a busy mom raising a, a bunch of kids and, uh, you know, I'm not going to tell you you have to go read Paul Johnson's Intellectuals because I've really told you enough for you to know what the book's about and uh, even for you to talk intelligently about it. You know, you can you can say to people, have you ever heard of Paul Johnson's book Intellectuals? And in it he shows that people who are looked up to as the shapers of Western opinion, people who are the poets and the philosophers and the authors, the, uh, oh, my goodness, turns out all these people that everybody adulates and admires and wants to be connected to are the most horrible human beings to those who are closest to them, right? So now you know the essence of Paul Johnson's book. It's a great book. Is it worth a read? Well, it's like saying, is a Mercedes worth $90,000? It depends what else you have to spend money on. I mean, it's it's not worth $90,000 uh, if uh, all you have is 75000 And if you went to ninety, you you'd be eating into the rent budget. Of course, it's not worth it then. But um, if, on the other hand, you have considerably more money, well, yes, absolutely, go for it. There's no question that uh, the 90,000 Mercedes will, will probably give you twice the pleasure and satisfaction that a $45,000 um, Volvo or Ford will give you. Probably, yes. So when I say, is it worth reading Paul Johnson's book, Intellectuals? Um, it depends. If if you are spending a few hours a week watching television, then by all means, <laughs> get rid of the television budget a time and use it to read Paul Johnson's Intellectuals for sure. But if you are, are busy running your business and raising your family and helping at your, your church or, or wherever, wherever it is that, that you help out, yeah, you may at this particular point in your life, all you need from the book may be all I've just given you. This, this is exactly the same as what I'm going to say about the next book, a very important book, a monumental book, a fascinating book. Uh, is it one that you must read? Depends. Depends how much free time you have. If you're wasting time on uh, a lot of time on – if you're watching too much sports on television, I mean, I, I'm an enthusiast. I, I like it. But it depends how much. If you're watching too much, then rather take some of the time and read the book I'm, I'm going to talk about. Uh, if you're running a busy life with very little downtime and very little leisure, then I'm going to tell you all you need to know for now about the book. What's it called? Camp of the Saints. It was written by a French, very interesting French guy, an adventurer, an explorer, an author. Uh, his name is Jean Raspail, R-A-S-P-A-I-L. And he wrote it in 1973. The book, my friends, is prophetic. Now, uh, I do have to tell you, <laughs> I have to tell you this, that um, when you talk to your liberal pals and you mention this, if they're particularly well-educated and they know anything at all about it, they will look at you with horror. Oh, that's a racist book. But uh, you see, in the old days, when liberalism was truly liberal, uh, there were no such things as prohibited ideas. Nobody ever said, oh, that book is racist. You know, that was called book banning. It was called mind policing. We didn't like that sort of thing. 
And we always used to say that the best cure for bad ideas is good ideas. And so we never, ever uh, tried to disparage books because we didn't like their ideas. Today, all of that is different. And so uh, uh, Jean Raspail in 1973, and we're talking 73. In 73, virtually no Muslims in Europe, right? Tiny handful. 1973, uh I don't know the exact numbers, but I don't think, honestly, I don't think there were 20,000 Muslims in America. I, I don't have the exact figures. But you certainly, in 1973, you did not walk through any neighborhoods in, in America that were Muslim neighborhoods, right? I mean, uh, I, I, was, I was a young person, but I, I certainly remember going through places in New York or Detroit that are today, frankly, dangerous for Jews to go into because they're Muslim. Area. It wasn't like that. There was nothing like that. Uh, in Europe, very, very, very few Muslims in Europe in 1973. And uh, Jean Raspail writes a book called Camp, no, excuse me, with, a, with the definite article V in front of it. He writes The Camp of the Saints in 1973. And it's a sort of an apocalyptic novel. And um, it speaks about mass third world immigration to France and the West in general. It is so amazing. I read the book, by the way. I read the book because William F. Buckley of National Review recommended it back then. Uh, so I, I read it probably 1980, I'm thinking. And um, even then already it was starting to seem amazing. But the book was haunting and incredible. And again, uh, I'm not telling you you have to read it. Depends what else you've got going on in your life. If you're a busy person, I'm telling you all you need to know about the book. And uh, The Camp of the Saints, Jean Raspail. And uh, uh, it, it, uh, it, it talks about uh, uh, Calcutta, India, and um, uh, the West already is starting to feel guilty about how much better our house is than other people's houses, if you know what I mean. Uh, they're feeling guilty, and some European countries say that, uh, you know, any Indian babies that can be adopted and raised in, in Europe, I forget which countries in Europe did this, in the book. And then um, the Bel it was the, their consulates got absolutely overwhelmed with thousands of poverty-stricken people desperate to give their children over to be brought to Europe. And so they quickly, uh, they quickly undid that particular policy. And uh, what happens with the rest of the story? Well, I'm going to tell you, coming back. Hold on. In just a moment, your rabbi will return with the rest of the plot, the rest of the story of the camp of the saints. It is haunting in its prophetic implications. It's like this book was written out of last week's headlines. I'll tell you more. Wait right there. Hi, everyone. And uh, your radio rabbi, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and uh, please be in touch with me. My, my website is uh, rabbidaniellappin.com, and on my website there is a Contact Us tab. And uh, many of you have already discovered that uh, I do answer a certain number of my emails personally. I read them all, and uh, some of them actually get answered, and you've received emails from me. Several of you have actually <laughs> written back to thank me for that. And uh, I love hearing from you. I, I, I like 
Um, I like feedback on the podcast. If you like it, that's great, obviously. But if you have suggestions, things you'd prefer, uh, for instance, a few weeks back, I asked folks about uh, how you felt about the length. Is it too long? I was, I was, and again, I'm gonna, I'm gonna leave it at the current format for another few weeks till I really uh, analyze it. But when I do analyze it, uh, the most significant factor will be the cascade of wonderful emails I got from so many of you. Uh, giving your opinion about the length and some of you had wonderful suggestions which I've started to implement some of which so uh, go to rabbidaniellappin.com and um, click on the contact us tab and uh, let me know how you feel love that um, also there may be questions you may have uh, things you want to ask well there's an ask the rabbi tab you can do that um, there uh, you can subscribe to my free weekly email thought tools which um, I think you need. I really do. Uh, I know it's another thing in your mailbox, but um, not everything that comes into your mailbox is a waste, and I don't think this is. Uh, you should also take a look at the resources in the store section of the website. Uh, obviously, I love it when you buy that stuff because that proves to me that I'm delivering something to you of value, right? Uh, right now, I don't minimize your investment because you're investing your time which is extremely significant. It's really in short supply. Just listening to this podcast means that you're investing your time, and I appreciate that, and it's very significant. Investing money is when you decide you want to delve more deeply into any of the topics. And uh, what I focus on, just for those of you who are not aware, is I, uh, I bring ancient Jewish wisdom to bear in very practical terms, uh, in terms of uh, tools and tips and techniques that impact uh, your life family-wise, uh, your friendships, your faith, and, yes, your finances. And I have books and audio programs and video stuff uh, all focused on different aspects of uh, social, family, faith, and finances particularly, particularly at, uh, in, in this uh, current economic climate. So, uh, back to a very uh, prescient book called The Camp of the Saints by a French, a very fascinating guy, uh, uh, an, 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 an adventurer, a, uh, a, uh, an explorer, a, um, an author, a guy called Jean Raspail. And uh, what he talks about is uh, people, and he, he focuses on India and France, but obviously it's very clear that he's talking about the whole third world and the whole of Western Europe. And uh, eventually the population, and, you know, I mean, literally millions of people in India um, start getting hold of rusty old freighters, and they start piling onto them, and they start traveling to Europe. And this massive fleet, a huge armada, carrying millions of refugees, steams unstoppably towards the coasts of France. And they, they come around the Cape of Good Hope, and they come up West Africa, and they get joined by more and more and more um, people, hopeless, desperate people from Africa. And then finally, this massive armada makes it through the Straits of Gibraltar. Meanwhile, Europe's going nuts. The French are going crazy, like, what are you supposed to do? But they've been so... Uh, propagandized by Western liberalism 
They've been so propagandized to this notion that all people are the same and national boundaries are not national boundaries and religious distinctions. You know, you thought you had a Christian country. How dare you? And uh, and so they they lack the moral courage to act. And eventually this huge fleet of desperate refugees by the millions uh, literally beaches itself on the shores of the French Riviera. I mean, it's, it's a marvelous, marvelous scene in the book. And you can just imagine, I mean, just imagine, imagine it. And uh, for those of you who are not going to read the book, that's fine. It's not a particularly easy book because it's a translation from the French. And I have no doubt that it reads much more fluidly and easily in French, which I don't read. But uh, as a translation, it's it lumbers just a little bit. But I'm, I'm giving you the, the gist of it very, very uh, completely, I think. And, uh, you know, the story flips between how the European governments are dealing with it and the attitude of the immigrants. And by the way, they're not coming along and wanting to become French and they're not wanting to come along and and integrate into their host societies. No, siree. (laughs) They want all the benefits of being there uh, and they want all the goodies that they can't get back in India. Uh, and it's pretty clear what's going on there. They didn't come for the Western values. They didn't come because they wanted to be French. <laughs> they came for the, the goodies, that's all. And uh, they are retaining exactly their own culture. And the, and the book describes the, the filth and the slovenliness and the complete uh, aban- – I mean, there, there are no Western values. They're, they're not even civilized. These are barbaric people. And there they are by the million on the shores of France. By this time, of course, the southern part of France has been completely abandoned. All the French people have left in terror. They fled northwards. And the area only has uh, army and police people and who, themselves not able to do very much. They, I mean, they, they don't know what they're supposed to do. They've been invaded by unarmed foreigners. And isn't this prophetic? What is a more apt description for what has happened to Italy and France, Germany, Holland, Belgium, Norway, Denmark. What's, what is it if not an unarmed invasion? Fascinating. It's exactly, exactly what's been happening. And um, the, uh, the, the story it sort of leaves you with a very uneasy feeling that this is not just an apocalyptic novel but that somehow it's kind of real and it was not real at the time it was written it wasn't and it wasn't even real by 1980 but it is real now um the uh, the 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 weakness of the western democracies their inability to recognize that there's such a thing as national integrity their complete fear and and passivity and uh, and the extent to which they've been paralyzed with moral uncertainty and that's really what it is paralyzed by moral uncertainty uh, has caused this to spread, and uh, people are coming from all of the third world and you know as the story moves towards its end. Uh, the mayor of New York has to open up Gracie Mansion uh, to other people. Uh, the Queen of England has to have uh, all, stra- all kinds of things happen. And again, prophetically, funnily and prophetically to her family. And, um, and now the Chinese have started swarming into Russia. Uh, it's amazing. And um, funnily enough, he has Switzerland holding out. But um, 
you can see that international pressure of the Western countries who've been overrun by third worlders, they are the ones who are telling Switzerland, hey, you, you should do this as well. What right do you have to hold your borders shut? Fascinating. But um, it really – and by the way, the, I should, as, I, as I, I did warn you, uh, the book is vilified, absolutely vilified. Um, it's it's regarded as racist and it's regarded as uh, as xenophobic and it's regarded as as crackpot and paranoid. Yeah, tell paranoid to some of the people who are trying to live their lives in areas in which they've lived for twenty, thirty years that are now taken over by Muslim immigrants in Paris, in Lyon, in Marseille. Uh, in Amsterdam, in the small towns around the Dutch countryside, throughout Denmark and throughout Norway, through the Midlands of England, Leeds. Used to be a nice city was Leeds. Today, very dangerous. Leeds is a place where uh, Pakistani fathers routinely kill their daughters for having boyfriends, and the British police are powerless. So... uh, I found it very interesting as I was preparing this podcast. I found it fascinating to go back and read book reviews of the book back in the 1970s. And um, French, uh, French book reviews, British book reviews, America, Time magazine, everybody hated the book. It was totally preposterous and paranoid and ridiculous. And here we are a few short years later and the book's a reality. Remember, The Camp of the Saints. I think it's a book you're probably going to be hearing more about. I really do. Um, because it's just, as more and more people, I think, become aware of what I'm telling you about it, there are just going to be more and more people writing about it and talking about it. And the nice thing is you'll be able to participate because you are knowledgeable and you are in the picture. And that really is one of the services that I take very seriously. I... Uh, and, and I'm, I'm not joking now, although I, I'm sort of sometimes humorous about uh, uh, being the Mother Teresa of podcasting, sort of just serving you. But, uh, but I'm very serious in that uh, I really want to make sure that with a deep understanding of how the world really works, you're equipped um, to help change hearts, to help change minds, um, to talk to people and to sound reasonable and knowledgeable and educated and persuasive and compelling. Uh, to know the right questions to ask your friends and to ask them in in a very nice and non-threatening way with a smile on your face. So tell me, I'm just curious now, what is the moral basis for why my hard-earned money has to be taken away from me and given to somebody who has not worked a day in his life? And you know that's true, right? I mean, you know that's happening. So um, could you just like explain to me why this is fair? Like, what aspect of this is good? Questions like that. I, I like giving you those questions. And uh, if you happen to follow me on Twitter, by the way, at Rab at uh, just Daniel Lappin, D A N I E L L A P I N, uh, you will get regularly questions I give that I recommend that uh, that you ask people, ask your liberal friends. Maybe you've got a liberal work associates. Maybe you've got liberal family members, right? Maybe kids. And uh, right? 
never never be angry, never never be rude or ad hominem or unpleasant, but just in the politest and mildest and smilingest way possible, ask some questions. And you say, you know, I'm just, I'm curious how you see this. I really want to know how you see it. And so, uh, so you, 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 you're saying that there should be uh, open borders that basically um, any uh, people from South America who want to come into the United States should be allowed to. And, and again, like, and, and I understand that's your position. I fully accept that, and I respect you and your position. But um, why not open – on the same basis, why not open your house to these very same people? In other words, if they're able to come in, oh, you support the tent city. Do you, you like the idea that your town has turned the local uh, park into a tent city for the homeless? Well, um wouldn't it make more sense for you and some of your friends to invite them into your house? See, I wouldn't because I don't think they should be in the park. I don't think that's what a city park is for. But since you're okay with that, why stop there is what I don't understand. For uh, many more questions like that, the Twitter is Daniel Lappin. My website is rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, we will be back in just a moment with more on the invasion of Europe taking place right now. Don't go away. Welcome back, each and every one of you. Thank you very much indeed for being part of this podcast, and uh, thank you for listening. And, uh, hey, thank you for telling other people about it. You must be doing that because week by week the number of downloads grows dramatically, the number of people listening grows dramatically, and that gives me a very good feeling uh, because I'll be honest with you. Uh, speaking into a microphone for two hours, not easy, not easy. Now, let me speak to you in person for two hours. I'd be honored. It's a pleasure. Uh, let me give a speech to your church. Let me speak to your business organization. Uh, let me speak to um, any group. Two hours flies by. For me, I love it. And the fact that I love it is obvious to the audience that helps them love it. Speaking into a microphone is hard. Uh, how hard? Quite hard. Um, you know, I'll, I'll tell you a little secret. I'm not big on museums. I'm not. I'm not big on museums. Um, I don't need to see the artifact. You know, if it's a museum of natural history, I mean, some of these museums are terrific. I understand. But I, I can read about it. That's fine. I'm okay with that. I don't actually need to see the things. If it's a, if it's a um, museum of animals and there are all kinds of uh, plaster mock-ups of animals, it's very nice. I don't need it. I can look at pictures. I'm, I'm good with that. Um, art galleries, I'm really okay staying home and looking at reproductions. I'm fine with that, really. Um, wh what is my problem with art galleries and museums? It is very difficult to be talked at incessantly, and that's why I know that listening to the podcast is every bit as difficult as recording it is. I understand that, and uh, that's one of the reasons that I break it up into segments, because that makes it easier for you to, to take it in small slices, because um, just listening, have somebody talking at you for two hours is hard. A museum is like that for me. An art gallery is like that. 
because the paintings do talk to me and the artifacts in a museum do talk to me. Each one has a story. But I really would rather be home and read about it online or in a book. I'm good with that because I can stop and think about it. I can intersperse it with a phone conversation with somebody. But uh, I find museums and art galleries very tiring, very tiring in the same way that, um, you know, if you've got a tiresome Uncle Fred who, whenever he's at your house for Thanksgiving, doesn't stop talking or an Aunt Agatha who babbles away incessantly, she won't shut up for a minute. She is very tiring because to have things just beamed at you incessantly, well, that's really hard really is very tiring and so uh, um, I I have to uh, recognize that I've got to prepare the podcast I've got to make sure that there's enough in it to make it worth the investment of your time I have so much respect for your time so I have to make sure that I'm not wasting it that would be absolutely the worst thing imaginable And so I've got to give you tools. I've got to give you uh, deeper insights into how the world really works. And uh, I've got to be able to equip you with uh, intellectual ammunition to achieve the things that you have to achieve in your life. That's that's what I need to do. And, uh, And that's what I try my very, very best, my very best to do. So if uh, to any extent... Uh, you feel I'm succeeding, do let me know at my website, rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, also, as I say, please continue telling others about it. Please continue sharing the the, the podcast with others. Uh, it means a lot to me as those numbers grow. It tells me that uh, more and more people are finding what I'm doing valuable. And, and that's ultimately what makes life meaningful, isn't it? When we find that uh, what we do is meaningful to other people. It's really all it is. I mean, if if I can make the things I do meaningful to God and meaningful to you, that's it. I mean, my, my cup runneth over. It really does. It's wonderful. It's what I try and accomplish. It's really what I try and do. And um, and so in in this podcast, this ninth podcast, I have endeavored to start laying a moral foundation for immigration control the right of every country to stop people coming in. So uh, what are countries supposed to do? Now, again, I don't like saying what I'm going to have to say because I recognize that we've all been propagandized by political correctness, and therefore what I'm going to say is going to sound extremely aggressive. It's going to sound uh, uh, cruel. And in my defense, I have to tell you that uh, it's neither of those things. Uh, It is true, and it is effective, and it is also moral. Because you've got to remember that part of morality is not just this generation, but the next generation and the one after that as well. You see, societal stability is very important, not just to God, but to you and your families and your children in every possible way. Constant changes in law, very, upheaval, very, very serious upheaval. Changes in the tax code, you can't build a business because you never know what's going to happen. 
social unrest. You can't buy property because maybe it's going to be turned into a blighted area because the uh, the authorities are uh, have proven already surrenderers and incapable of maintaining civic control, basically handing over everything to the barbarians. And that's really what ca- the Camp of the Saints is about. The Jean Raspail novel that I told you about is about an ultimate clash between civilization and barbarism. And um, guess what? Barbarism wins. Civilization loses the ability to defend itself. What is the very first step in losing the ability to defend yourself? Losing a sense of justice, losing a sense of rightness in your cause. And I'm afraid that in the West, that's where we are. Where diminishing numbers of Americans feel that it is worthwhile defending the values that made America. Things are changing, they say, and we must all change with them. No, not at all. No, the object is very often to stand astride the railway line of progress and to stop the onrushing locomotive. Sometimes you've got to do that. You don't necessarily just go with the flow, especially when the flow is barbarism against civilization. And I want to make clear something that uh, is a theme you'll hear from me more than once, and it's very important to understand this. Uh, we'll be talking about it uh, extensively in uh, the next podcast episode that will be released next week, number 10. And that is that um, there is not such a thing as lots of civilizations. You have, you have people say, right, the Inca civilization, uh, the, the Peruvian civilization, the, uh, the, the Indian civilization, Chinese civilization. My friends, please don't believe that. It is an abuse of language. It's false and it's destructive. It's simply not true. Civilization is civilization. You know, it's like saying there's lots of different kinds of airplanes. There's airplanes that go underwater and there's airplanes that go through the deserts. And there are airplanes that uh, go in tunnels. And there are air... No. Those are transport forms. There's underwater transport called submarines. And there's desert transport called either camels or or half tracks. And there's uh, transport that can run through the Arctic conditions. There's snow cats. And uh, yes, there are transport that goes in the air high up. Those are called uh, airplanes. Um, Yes. But not everything is an airplane. Not everything is a civilization. There are lots and lots of cultures, probably about 5,000 of them around the world, about 5,000 cultures. How many civilizations? One. A civilization has definitions. It's like an airplane. It is what it is. A civilization is what the West has built. And by the way, the majority of people agree with me on this. And the proof is they vote with their feet. They're only too happy to leave the barbaric cultures from which they came and to make new homes in Western civilization because they want the benefits that Western civilization has created. And they're just like the the hapless, hopeless millions of immigrants from the Indian subcontinent in John Raspail's novel The Camp of the Saints that uh, board their hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rusty freighters 
and cross the oceans of the world, growing in number all the way until they finally land on the shores of the French Riviera. They know where they're going. Believe me, there is no immigration, illegal immigration controls in Saudi Arabia or Bangladesh. Right? Nobody's trying to immigrate to uh, Somalia. Really, nobody. People are all trying to leave those places to come to civilization. And so it's very important. And uh, I, I ask you to deliberately adjust your thinking on this. <clears throat> and don't, you know, never take what I say on, on face value. I mean, evaluate it. You, you, you know, really think hard as to whether what I'm saying holds up. And don't make a decision right now. If, you know, think about it. Um, hold it up to the light. Test it against circumstances. Measure it against prevailing conditions. See if indeed it provides a meaningful explanation for the phenomena you see around you. And, uh, and you will eventually come to see, I think, by yourself, that, uh, yes, there is such a thing called civilization, and it's quite easy for us to define what are the characteristics of civilization. And uh, uh, there is one civilization that was created by the West, what we think of as Western civilization. And all the other cultures range in varying degrees of barbarism. And the tragedy is that America's elite, America's intellectuals, America's academicians, America's politicians, they've all decided that civilization is not worth defending. They've all decided that somehow barbarism has moral right on its side. They believe that, tragically, and that somehow that The barbarism is what needs to be protected and defended against the forces of civilization. That's what's going on in Europe. It's what's going on in the United States of America. It's a clash of titanic proportions and um, a clash made ever more sinister by the weird and unholy alliance between secular fundamentalism and Islam. Against, well, yes, against civilization. It's one that is going to need Jews and Christians to stand shoulder to shoulder together. And that's precisely the reason that a number of years ago, I and some Christian and some Jewish brothers and sisters started something called the American Alliance of Jews and Christians. The American Alliance of Jews and Christians. AAJC.org. Visit it sometime. Maybe you'll want to help. Maybe you'll want to come aboard. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. That's it for this particular episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. We'll be back next week with the next episode continuing as we explore how the world really works with your rabbi. That's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.